It's all right. We just got interrupted on this podcast. It's cool. No, it's by cool. Michael it's Nevins. Cool. Michael Nevins. That's November Echo Victor India November Sierra. <laughs> we'll wait, right. Mike. We're okay. waiting. Take your time. Sorry. You're all right. <laughs> How was your IFR experience? It was wonderful. It looked cool, man. Six. Hours. I got like I think I had was it five hours up there today. That's great. That's awesome. It was cool too because it was right at 500, so you shoot all the approaches down the middle. I was sitting outside my house on Sunday, and Jai Hao was flying around in 685. And I was like, I heard a plane coming, so I pulled up flight radar, and I was like, oh, it's 685. And then I saw a dark shadow of a 172 go right over my house. Nice. And I was like, dude, that is awesome. And you could just hear him like, that's cool. That's why I told. I mean, you were one of the only people that flew, and everyone should have been taking their students up because there's only one day to do it. Because it won't be like that again for. It's only ever like that once a year in Florida, and it's usually right about this time. I don't think. I don't think it'll happen again. That's awesome, man. This is Flying with a Purpose, a podcast brought to you by Flight Review and Melbourne Flight Training. I'm David Allen, a student pilot currently pursuing my private pilot certificate. And I'm Derek Fallon, a certified flight instructor and the owner of Melbourne Flight Training. Got a question about flight training or aviation in general? We'd love to answer it. Details about how to send us your questions will be at the end of the show. Now, let's get to the good stuff. Well, welcome back to Flying with a Purpose. In our last episode, Derek and I were talking about... Uh, what is flight training? What is what is what what? How is it unique in the uh, educational experience? And we were also talking about the perishability of that school, uh, of that skill. And I wanted to touch base now um, on maintaining proficiency. And the reason I wanted to bring this up is because during the classroom training that you gave us a couple of weeks back, you mentioned something that caught me by surprise, and I just wanted you to talk about it, and that was um, the difference between currency and proficiency. And the question I have is, is the minimum FAA currency enough to maintain proficiency? And I think your answer was... No. Well, yes, that's that's a, that's the <laughs> answer that I would have expected, but your answer said said was was close to that. But what you basically said was it depends on the kind of flying you're going to do. Correct. Can you mention that? Can you talk a little bit about that? So I think that there's uh, a big difference between pilots who fly professionally and their proficiency and their recency, um, and then pilots who fly recreationally or for personal purposes. It, it matters. You know, how many passengers you're carrying, meaning the difference between none or a lot, the equipment you're flying. Proficiency fades fast in faster aircraft than it does in slower aircraft, for example. So someone who is a recreational pilot who owns a 150 who uh, can fly twice a year and be totally comfortable or just rent a 150 from a flight school and be totally comfortable going up for an hour and a half, you know, by themselves and flying around and just enjoying some sightseeing and come and do a few touch and goes and then tie the plane down. That's a lot different than someone who is actively flying a Gulfstream 5 or, you know, a another corporate jet or a turboprop in the commercial environment uh, where 
they're required to have a certain level of safety uh, because the aircraft is faster or they have nine people in the back of the plane. What is the correlation between your ratings and your certificates and the proficiency requirements? Uh, as As a private pilot, for example, if I want to carry passengers, I have to have three touch and goes to... To, to within the previous 90 days, 90 calendar days, I believe. And, and if I get any of these numbers wrong, then please correct me immediately. You should know these, Dave. I should know these, but I don't. Get them right. Um, but then there's... Get them right, if Dave. If I want to do night flying, I have to have touch and goes in, in night, right? Wrong. So, okay. So, okay. But what about if I get... What's wrong about that statement? Well, I don't know. Again... In, full stop. Okay. full. So they have to be the full stop. That's to be the full stop, yeah. And what about, you know, now I pile on an instrument rating... Busted by your instructor on the podcast. There we go. <laughs> uh, I have to have an instrument rating. If uh, There's certain currency requirements for, for my instrument rating. Are there currency requirements additionally for for commercial certificates? Can you speak to how those build as, you, so, as so your really, certificates go? When it comes to certificates only... Currency requirements are pretty much the same. There's VFR currency, and there's IFR currency, and there's CFI currency. So VFR currency is flight review. If you want to carry passengers, it's the required landings. Uh, IFR is uh, six approaches uh, in the last six months with holding, intercepting, and tracking. And and that, that's that's pretty much it. And then CFI. CFI is you got to renew the CFI every two years by check ride or by... Uh, taking a ground school to renew it every two years. So those are the same regardless of anything. It doesn't really change. But if you're operating under a different part of their federal regulations, like 135 or 121 or 125 or 91K, you're going to have different training requirements that are mandated by the FAA for the type of operation that you're operating under. So, Or even you know, U.S. government operations are going to have specific training that they require. So that currency becomes different, you know, for example, a A320 captain at Frontier Airlines is going to require to go to the check ride every six months and take a full check ride every six months. And I think they've even added now um, line-oriented flight training, which is like a cross-country in the simulator, and some upset recovery training that's new that uh, people have to recover from you know, getting accidentally upside down or uh, stalling the airplane at high altitude and how to recover from that. So those that training is specific to the operation you're doing. Otherwise, certificates are just, you know, your regular flying certificate, whether it be private commercial ATP, flight review, landings, instrument currency for your instrument rating, and then CFI currency is every two years. As a as a chief chief instructor for the flight school here, what are you looking for uh, when it comes to proficiency from your instructors? And how do you manage the their proficiency to make sure that they're doing the things that you um, want them to do in terms of keeping their skills honed. So we have a program here where we actually provide a couple flight hours a month to the full-time instructors to allow them to take an airplane up and use it for their currency. How they use that, I don't really dictate too much on exactly what they do with that time. So sometimes it gets used for, to just go fly the airplane a little bit. And sometimes they do some pretty serious practice with it, especially if they're like working on their double eye um, and they want to shoot some approaches and things like that. More purpose-built training that we have developed as we're headed towards the 141 is that the assistant chief flight instructor or myself will continue to do weekly training with one instructor to where we take someone up 
and we go through the maneuvers that we want to see, or we kind of cover something that's a current problem thing that's happening on the check rides, you know, especially like landings, crosswind landings, things like that, and work with the CFI to make sure that their teaching technique is how we want to see it and that it's proper. It's, it's helped improve things a lot because it's really getting us out there, and the CFIs are getting trained from another CFI, which is how it should be. So, and, and then, of course, I do a lot of the in CFI training for people who are in the course that are coming up, they get to see what I want to see going into a CFI position here. And then if you're going to upgrade to like, you know, our more complex airplanes like the Cirrus or the Dutch, the Duchess multi-engine airplane, they're getting all that training from me initially. It's a good thing, you know, for the instructors, because I remember when I was instructing, except for doing like maintenance missions or stuff like that, I didn't really get to fly the airplane and train. So you can't fly an airplane professionally without training to some degree. So it's very beneficial to them. As a as a private pilot, if I was to get my private pilot certificate, what would you as an instructor, what are your recommendations? Let's say let's say I decided I'm good with private pilot certificate for now. I don't need to press on with my uh instrument uh instrument rating or anything at this time. Aside from the minimums and aside from the uh flight review that comes up every two years, what would you like to see in a, in a pilot as something like, if I see these things, then I can be fairly confident they are proficient. What would be the recommended from your standpoint in your seat proficiency tasks or objectives for a, a private pilot? So I think a lot of it depends on the individual. So how old are you is the first thing. Are you older? You should fly more. If you're younger, you don't lose that, that skill is not as perishable because your brain is younger. You retain the muscle memory, but much better than older people. If you're flying maybe regularly, like once a month, you're pretty proficient for a recreational pilot. Um, if you're flying once a week, you're really proficient. If you're flying multiple times a week, that's you're super, you're a super proficient recreational pilot. Now the problem with recreational pilots is while they may be proficient in their normal operations, they don't really get much outside the envelope. We go fly somewhere, we go to the practice area and practice our normal maneuvers in the ACS, and we, you know, maybe go do some landings, okay? I guarantee you that most people don't practice engine failures or emergencies. Uh, most people don't stall the airplane by themselves, you know, especially if they've bought a nice airplane. They're not going to go out and, like, stall it all the time for fun um, or for, for proficiency. So I think, you know, if you if it was you and you were private pilot i would like to i would like to see people fly like once a month i think that's a good safe amount that way if you ever had to fly for some reason or you had to fly someone like hey i need to fly my aunt for a medical treatment in miami or i need to go to a business meeting in the bahamas and i have to fly there you don't feel like oh my gosh i haven't flown in so long what am i going to do i don't even remember how to do a cross country it's been six months and you're kind of more comfortable so you have to maintain a certain level of proficiency that's comfortable for you and it's based on a lot of factors but yeah once a month for a recreational pilot now the problem with recreational pilots is and i'm sorry to throw you all under the bus but you don't train just like i was mentioning like you do the minimum amount of training due to cost so upset recovery courses going and doing stalls with your cfi repeated practice engine failures, getting extremely comfortable with your airplane during accelerated stalls, doing different scenario-based training with an instructor and renting an instructor for a day and just getting out there and learning something with them. That's typically not happening. And people, most people do the bare minimum. Whereas if you look at a professional pilot, they're doing nothing but training. You know, Any chance that they have, they're training or working with uh, 
other people who are professionals alongside of them that are kind of giving them feedback. You know, when I fly a jet, we brief and debrief every flight, period, end of story. The kind of ops that I do, it's mandatory. You have to say, hey, we're going to do this. This is how we're going to fly this flight. And we're going to get back on the ground and we're going to talk about where things went wrong or where things went really well, which recreational pilots typically don't have the ability to do that with themselves. So you got to bring an instructor with you so you can kind of get that feedback because you could be doing something really wrong and not even know it. Um, I saw people leaning engines very, very aggressively, but at high power settings, which if we do a mastery leaning class, like we were talking about in the last podcast, you would kind of learn how bad that is. You know, you don't want to lean at all above 75% power. And I see experienced pilots doing this with a really nice airplane. And I'm like, why are you doing this? This is not good. Read some, some of this stuff that I have for you and you'll, you'll know why. Um, so if you get an instructor, you get that kind of like that, that the little self check that you're not getting. Oh, I didn't realize that. Or, Hey, I'm, now I know how to use my GPS better or just all those little things that you can, you're not thinking about because, well, no one's told you. So I know that's a long way around your question, but it's, it's, it's all those things together. And, and to go back to, sorry, I'm going to go back again and say that even if you went flying every month and you only did the same thing and you only flew in the same weather conditions, that also wouldn't really do anything for you. Or you went like back and like a lot of people when they're building time at Melbourne, they're like, Okeechobee, it's 51 miles. Okeechobee and back, Okeechobee and back, Okeechobee and back. That's doing nothing for you. After the fifth time, the about the the only different thing that you're going to have is the pattern entries at both airports. Well, I mean, you could order something different on the menu each time. But That's right, uh, yeah. <laughs> they do have the big Texas hamburger thingy. Really? And I think they also have it in a breakfast sandwich, which Dude, I love. I'm going to have to go down there for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, and that's the thing is, like, I, I, I want to go hit all the airports around the area, not just that one, so I can see how that could be a thing like you're just always going down to Okeechobee you're always going down to the same the same one or two or three airports you're used to uh what happens when you have to divert yeah everyone has different thresholds but the good pilots that I see even though maybe they're not as proficient they're not really good on the radios and they're not confident in a Bravo airspace those are the guys that are calling me and going hey Derek will you go fly with me here because I want to do it and I know that you'll help me do it and I'll learn something those are the guys who are like, those are getting, they're getting proficient and they're learning and they're staying current because they're getting something out of the flight. It's not just out and back by themselves and then they have no way to evaluate what they did wrong. So if that same person went and flew to Bravo without the instructor and they just ended up getting yelled at the whole way, there's two things that are going to happen. They're going to be like, oh, well, I got yelled at the whole way. And then the next time they go, they're probably going to make similar mistakes or they're going to be like, I'm never doing that again because now I'm scared. So if you take an instructor with you, you got to get something out of it, and then you'll be more confident. So I was I was uh, following somebody on Twitter, and uh, this girl she just got her private pilot certificate like a month ago, and uh, yesterday or today, I think it was yesterday, she went up with an instructor and uh, in a Satabria did upset training and got her spin endorsement. Awesome. Ooh, that's awesome for a private pilot. Exactly. Ha- that's what we should be doing. That happens so rare, though. It's because it's because of money. It really is. I mean, I, if you think about it, if you had unlimited money, wouldn't you train in everything? I mean, I would walk over to Kissimmee right now and jump into P-51 and learn how to fly that thing and pay all the money and get my type rating or whatever they do to get the, if it's an LOA, I don't remember what it is anymore, but or fly a B-17 or a P-40. 
uh, you know, or I would go get qualified in an F-104 up at NASA, you know, like that you could pay $40,000 for like one flight or something like that, right? If you had unlimited money, you'd fly everything, right? And I think that's the problem is, is that it's, it's cost prohibitive and it kind of stinks, you know, that it's like that, but it's unfortunate, you know, just like if you're going to do anything and, and I kind of compare it to like golf, like my dad will spend hundreds if not thousands of dollars playing golf, like on a, whatever frequency that is, like a month or whatever, you know, just golf, golf, golf. And he hires an instructor to help him get his golf game better. And aviation seems to be the only thing that no one will just hire an instructor to get better at aviation stuff. Which is kind of a, one of those life or death things. Like if I, if I miss, if I shank my golf ball, I just, you know, it's going to have to be grab another one out of the bag but right you know if you shank a landing you're into a pole or exactly something. and so. and i mean if you see you see now the accident rates going up quite a bit uh the non-fatal accident rate is really high right now and insurance rates are going up across the country for aviation operations and their solution to that will be mandated training uh it's coming out now i mean people are are you are mandated to have a certain level of training to own a Bonanza or to own a Baron, or if you own a turboprop, you are, you're going to school. It's not going to be an option. You know, you're going to go to school for two weeks and learn how to fly. And then you're going to do a recurrent every year. Even if you're just a recreational King Air pilot and you own a King Air, you have a lot of money, you want to fly it. You're going to go through all the training and then they're going to require the recurrence and you're going to have the insurance. And some people are going to be required to have a co-pilot. It's just going to get worse and worse unless people start realizing that if they were, ahead of it a little bit, you know, they could kind of help fix the problem. Things happen a lot quicker when I come over the fence at 120 knots versus 65. That's correct. Yeah, the more performance the airplane has, the more training really that's required. And that's something we didn't talk about a minute ago. You know, we were talking about just recreational versus commercial. And if you're flying a fast airplane, if you're flying a very complex airplane, you're going to want to get a lot of training. And you should have a mentor pilot that you're flying with on the regular. I have plenty of people who own, you know, Cirruses, uh, Bonanzas, and other very complex airplanes that are utilizing my services or other CFI services around the field or my people to kind of just stay proficient or have somebody sitting next to them so that they can gather a little bit from flying this leg that they're doing and maybe they'll learn to not do something that they were doing before. Another thing is like with Cirruses and you know everybody talks about the stall spin stuff with the Cirrus, which is actually a very stable airplane in my opinion. You know, I, I follow a lot of SR-22 owners that they just have never stalled their airplane. They did it when they got their transition training. And then I'm like, hey, when's the last time you did a stall? And they're like, I don't know. And then we get to do it and they get to feel how the airplane performs. But in a high-performance airplane, it can come a lot faster uh, than it can in a 150. And it's a lot more uh, – the, the results are a lot worse. So you have to train more. You know, it's interesting. The, the argument can be made that the airplanes getting much more complex are – are also becoming much more automated, and I use um, to, to kind of digress a little bit. I go I go to my my job where I work on computer networks, and I have some tools that I've I use to access devices. Uh, and I if I have to do this thing more than once or twice in a row, I'm going to write a script that's going to do this for me because you're the computer, you work for me. 
I, not the other way around. And so I'm going to automate as much of this stuff as I can. But um, I'm able to automate it because I know what it's supposed to do and I know what I want it to do. And so I don't give my scripts to other team members unless they understand what it's doing in the background. And I think from an automation standpoint in the cockpit, I love automation and I love what it can do for us, but I think it's really important to understand what it's doing to the systems in the background because otherwise when the things don't go right, you, you're stuck trying to figure out what's, you know, what, what could be... What what's where's the malfunction? And if you're not ready to 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 work that instantly, you're way behind the airplane. Yeah, automation training is really important, and you have to get an instructor to fly with you and go over how those things work, so you know how to do everything that's in it. Any of the high high fidelity GPS systems or glass cockpits. Every time I fly with someone, they have a deficiency somewhere, and I can go over it with them. Because I'm very proficient in this system because I fly it every day. So I can take them through and say, hey, you're, you're really not utilizing that part of the stuff right. Or, hey, you're, not, you're looking at this at the wrong time. You're taxiing. Like, don't use this to taxi the airplane. That's a big problem right now is the amount of heads-down accidents that are happening. You saw San Antonio, the CJ, one citation taxied into another citation that was parked. Not sure what caused that yet, so I'm not going to speculate. But I'll speculate that it was probably heads-down. I mean, if you're taxiing a jet and you run into another jet in a perfectly dry, clear day and you both end up in the ditch, you probably weren't looking where you were going. And that's a major problem with glass and with high performance, uh, high fidelity GPS systems and Bluetoothing your iPad into the transponder and all these cool things that we have that are totally awesome. And it's like, wow, look, I can look at the iPad. It could show me where I'm taxiing. Where are you looking? At your knee. <laughs> You know, right? Yeah, I'm, oh, it's showing me where I'm taxiing. Well, you better be really good at video games because otherwise you're going to hit a taxiway light. So getting training in those things, super important because it's overwhelming for a lot of people, even young people, even though young people tend to get things faster because they're, they grew up with these things. I was doing an after, after landing checklist uh, with you. Uh, the checklist had exactly three things on it and you still were like, stop the airplane. Then run your checklist. Exactly. Yeah, because it because you and your comment to me was everybody thinks they can run a checklist while taxiing until they run into a pole. Yep. So that's exactly right, and you know that's why the costs are going up, and that's why training is getting more expensive, and airplanes are getting more expensive, and it's kind of like a a downward spiral, if you will, uh, or kind of a catch twenty two that things are getting more expensive because there's not enough training. And then training gets too expensive, so people can't train, so things get worse, you know. So try to find a way to get some training. I think we're getting a little bit of a relief, too, like in the amount of online courses they are. Oh, and look at YouTube. I mean, you can get on YouTube, and you can pretty much learn anything. You know, just make sure that your source is really good. I had to talk about that in the same class. I don't know if you were there for that part of the talk. But, you know, how to use YouTube the right way. You know, not everything is true, but you can get a lot of training. Uh, from really good channels on YouTube where they actually train you like the finer points, you know, where he's talking about how to do things better, how to do maneuvers, um, or I any tell of you the... what, let's, let's save that and talk about it on the next episode because okay. I think that there's the YouTube and I think there's a number of other things that you can use that don't cost you money that can help you with your proficiency. Let's talk about that on the next episode. Does that okay. sound good? I got lots of stuff for you on that. Cool. Good. All right. Thanks so much for joining us here on Flying With a Purpose. Uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to Flying with a Purpose. If you'd like us to consider answering your question on the show, send us an email to podcast at flightreview.tv. That's podcast at flightreview.tv. We would love to hear from you. Also, check out the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash flightreview for the latest flight training episode. Derek is trying to turn me into a pilot in front of the world. Finally, if you like this show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps us out to have some five-star ratings, especially when we are just starting out. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of Flying with a Purpose. Thank you.